0: All right, this text is the text where Jesus gets his first disciples. Um, I'm going to start the way all great, great speeches start, which is with definitions. So what is a disciple? A disciple is somebody who's under a certain discipline. You can see the relationship of the two words, disciple, discipline. Discipline is about teaching. Discipline is positive teaching, and it's negative teaching. This idea of what ought to be done, what should be believed, is the positive. And the negative is the chastisement, the don't do that, the rebukes, the rod. So a disciple is somebody who comes under the discipline. Now, what we have is a cultural background that would make it easier to get this, but you can get it out of the text, What we have is this idea of a disciple, a student, coming, and there's a different relationship between students and teachers in this era than what we are accustomed to now. There's a a relationship of significant honor, and what we are going to see as we go through the text is we're going to see that relationship manifest. I want to also remind you of the purpose statement of the book of John, so if you go to page 2, John 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. Now, the emphasis of the portion of the text that we're on right now is on Christ as the Lamb of God. Christ as the Lamb of God, which we spent significant time on last week. And we'll also continue to spend some time on it. Uh, We'll be looking at the text about the institution of Passover today and talking about that. Last time we looked at Genesis with the sacrifice that Abraham was commanded to give. He was commanded to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and then God stopped Abraham in the process and provided a substitute, a replacement, a lamb, a ram. And so this um, young ram being provided as a substitute is the place where we're first introduced to the idea of the lamb of God and of that lamb being substitute for us in a very, very clear way. We have earlier examples of this In Genesis 3, and in the giving of animal sacrifice. But this is the place where it's the Lamb of God. Uh, That language, we have this idea of a lamb um, being there. Earlier on, you have Abel offering sheep. But you don't have that same word, lamb, being used. Now, as we get into chapter 1, verse 29, uh, this is the part that we looked at last time. So the next day, this is the second day in the book of John, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the summary I've given to you there of what we talked about in that text is Jesus is the sacrifice. And so that's that's the thing being emphasized. So there's about 40 minutes condensed into a sentence for you. Jesus is the sacrifice. Verse 32, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, we talked also about the fact that baptism served for Jesus as an anointing and as a start of his public ministry. So you remember, anointing is typically done with oil. The anointing with oil symbolizes strength. The three offices that Christ is anointed for are prophet, priest, and king. He is given power to perform those offices. And his baptism is used as the marker for his entry into those public roles. Now, baptism is given to us here for the first time in a Trinitarian way, with the name of the Trinity. We have the Father speaking and talking about his Son, we have the Holy Spirit present with a symbol, a dove, and we have Jesus himself present incarnate, and so John's baptism, which is an Old Testament baptism, we have here the institution of Trinitarian baptism. So baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's, we're told to do that at the end of Matthew. We're told to baptize the nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the baptism with water points to the reality of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the reality that's key for us as individuals is the idea that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us, He causes us to repent of our sins and to believe the gospel. And he empowers us to do ministry. He empowers us to do ministry. Now go to page 3. In verse 35, we deal with new text. Again, the next day, this is the third day of John. John stood with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So this is a repetition of what he said before. This is a repetition. Anybody know what repetition means in the Bible? It means emphasis. Okay, Repetition means emphasis. Repetition real close to each other, emphasis, emphasis. Okay, So behold the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God. John the Baptist thinks this is important and in fact he emphasizes the importance by kind of looking at these two disciples who's got John and Andrew there he's like you sure you want to keep hanging out with me because I'm looking at the Lamb of God might want to hang out with that guy so they take the hint the second time and they start going with Jesus so, what John is doing is he's recognizing the fact that he came to prepare the way for Jesus, and that includes having some disciples that would be well prepared to become disciples of Jesus. And so he sends these guys off these two disciples, Andrew and John, the author of the book. And so we have John and Andrew together become the first disciples of Jesus. Now we use the word discipleship in a really loose way now. The church in general is really good at using lots of terms in a really loose way now. But the word disciple, if you were somebody's disciple in the past, it would mean that you had submitted themselves to a discipline that they had prepared. Very different from, why don't we go to coffee every now and then if you feel like it. Which is sort of what we think of as modern discipleship. Okay? Discipleship, is a committed student relationship. A committed student relationship. So John has Andrew and John. John the Baptist has the Apostle John. It's not the Apostle yet. He'll be the Apostle later. And Andrew with him. These guys are his disciples. They're committed students. And he's saying rather than serving me and learning from me why don't you go serve and learn from that guy so think about the level of sacrifice that that represents have you ever had a really close relationship with somebody that you are teaching and that they honor you and they care about you and then imagine just giving that up so we, we kind of think of John the Baptist as this kind of marble man without feelings he's a marble man for sure but it doesn't mean he doesn't have feelings. It's that he controls that. He's willing to submit how he feels to what he ought to do. And so this guy sends John and Andrew to go and follow Jesus and to leave him. So John the baptizer teaches his own disciples to look to Christ for the reality that the baptism of John pointed to. Okay, so baptism, when John would baptize people, It's about repentance. It's about being cleansed. It's about this idea of recommitting to obedience to God. It's about the forgiveness of sins and the idea that we need to be cleansed, that we are dirty, that we are unclean. We need cleansing. We need cleansing in terms of the idea of being washed in the blood of Christ. We also need cleansing in the sense that we need to be sanctified, made more holy, make more righteous decisions, have our ignorance and error replaced by wisdom. Right? This is a, a cleansing, a taking away of the filth of the inward man. That's what this points to. And so there's a renewal of life to be wise, to have holy purposes, to do righteousness. And John is saying, I am pointing you to the Lamb of God. I'm not worthy to wash his feet or untie his sandals. And so you should go be that guy's disciple. Now, one of the things that was interesting, I mentioned to you a while ago the idea that the, the, the unwashing the un, the untying of the sandals, the washing of the feet, was generally performed by the lowest ranking service servant or the lowest ranking person in a household. And this was actually if you there's historical documents that say that disciples could be required to do whatever work they weren't like paying a tuition, but they were instead going and, and serving somebody in order to learn from them because they're providing service as a sort of tuition payment. That they could, be provide, they could be required to do work in the household, but one of the things that they could not be required to do was to untie the sandal and wash the feet. And so John the Baptist is saying, I'm not even worthy to be his disciple. I'm not even worthy to be the lowest ranking servant in his house, and you should go and be his disciples. So what kind of a promotion is that? Currently, you're serving the guy who's not worthy to wash this guy's feet, untie his sandal, so you should go serve that guy instead. But becoming that guy's disciple, big step up. So that's the commendation. Notice the humility of John as he's pointing these guys to him. Now, this term, Lamb of God... I want to delve into it further for you because this is a very important line. This is a line that we, again, Genesis 22, we have the example of Abraham and Isaac and the replacement lamb-ram that was given to replace Isaac. We have Exodus 12 with the Passover where there's this idea of the sacrifice of a lamb and the sacrifice of a lamb to substitute for us, for the blood to cover us, to have the wrath of God pass over. Isaiah 53 also talks about a sheep. So this is another key text. Uh, We're not going to go over that today. The John text that we're looking at now, and the book of Revelation is three places where it talks about the idea of Jesus as as this Lamb of God, or the sheep that was uh, slain before the foundation of the earth. Revelation 5 is the place where it really picks back up on this line of the Lamb of God. So you can look into those on your own time, but we're going to talk a little bit about Exodus 12 right now. So here's background. When we jump into Exodus 12, what is this about? Okay, Exodus 12, what we have is, first of all, the church had been enslaved. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. God had prophesied that this would happen in the book of Genesis. He tells, he tells Abraham, look, I'm going to take your descendants, and I'm going to give them all this land that you're in right now, but before then, I'm going to make sure they get enslaved for 400 years it's going to be awesome after that, though. But there's going to be a rough period of time. That enslavement occurs. It occurs in Egypt. It's prophesied. The next point God brought curse on the people of Egypt because they oppressed the church. So God prophesying something and God predestining a thing does not remove responsibility. God predestined the Egyptians to oppress Israel, and then he brings curse as a discipline for those who would be made believers, and a punishment for those who would not. So God brought curse on the people of Egypt because they oppressed the church, the visible people of God. They did not allow the visible people of God to be free and to serve God, even when a prophet came. Moses came to them and said, let my people go. And so this idea of, being free to serve God by obeying the commandments of God, that's the definition of true liberty. Christian liberty is a freedom to do what God commands. And so, this freedom is something that the Egyptians prevented them from having. So God brings curse on Egypt progressively, increases it as Egypt continues to disobey. God goes through ten plagues. Nine of them have already happened, and the Passover comes in relationship to the 10th one. Many of the Egyptians repent and join Israel when Israel leaves. And so we would have reason to believe that some of them had already repented by the 10th plague and were coming and seeking shelter. So this idea, we hear this in terms of the exiting of Israel out of Egypt, it talks about how there's 600,000 men of Israel and there was a mixed multitude with them. And that mixed multitude is a bunch of people who are have one parent who was a Jew, people who were Gentiles who weren't born into the church but were trying to figure out how to potentially come along with them and join them. And so you have this mixed multitude that's with them as well. So what we have in Exodus 12 is a discussion of protection from curse in this life and in the life to come. Okay, we're going to look at the idea of the 10th plague. And the 10th plague is going to be a curse that causes death in this life. But at the same time, it also, this Passover, spares from the curse in this life, and it points to the way to be freed from curse forever. These are the tenth plague is the angel of death coming to kill the firstborn of every household of man and the firstborn beast of every beast in the land, except in those households and that property of those households, where the blood of the sacrificial lamb is over the door of the household. What we have is the distinction now between the world, represented by Egypt, the visible church, represented by Israel, and the invisible church, those who actually have faith. The world suffers curse in this life and the life to come without end. The visible church is saved from much curse in this life because of the external order and teaching, and worship in the church. And the invisible church is saved from the wrath and curse of God forever in the life to come. So let's look at Exodus 12, and let's see this idea of the Lamb of God laid out for us, and the idea of Passover. This is set up. Now remember this. All the stuff in the Old Testament is written so that we would learn from it. And all of the ceremonies that are given are there to unpack for us the information about Jesus. Jesus is essentially an elaborate Russian doll. Don't make one that's an image of Jesus, though that would be idolatry. So, but if he were an elaborate Russian doll, you would have all these little dolls inside. And what are all those? They're all the ceremonies of the Old Testament. You can, you can put them out, and you look at each one, and you go, each one of these teaches something about Jesus. And then you could put them all together, put them back inside the big doll, and you go, huh, all that meaning's packed in there. So all of the ceremonies, all of the types of the Old Testament are teaching us some of the information that is consolidated into Jesus. They are given to us to unpack, to unveil who he is. And so Passover is a significant one of those. Chapter 12, verse 1. So we're on page 4 now. Exodus 12, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Okay, so God gives to the people of Israel a calendar, and he gives them a, what's called a liturgical calendar. He provides them with a timing of certain worship duties. It's a complex calendar that's given to them. And that becomes a part of the elements of worship in the Old Testament. They're required to keep these days. And so we have the Sabbath, we have the new moons, which are once a month, we have the feasts, which occur three times throughout the year, the three main ones. You have the fast day of Yom Kippur, you have additional days that are instituted beside that, and so you have this complex system. It also goes where there's a special year once every seven years, and a special year every 50 years. So that's the complex system. That gets simplified down for us in the New Testament to the Lord's Day. Okay, So the level of complexity next to the level of simplicity. That's it. The Lord's Day. So, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. So what we have is we have this day, the tenth of the month, where there's a selection of the lamb, and then you have this day, other day where it was going to be the sacrifice of the lamb. So the tenth of the month there's a selection, the fourteenth of the month there's a death. These lambs are taken, every man who is ahead of his own house is supposed to take a lamb for his household, and it's able to be taken out of the inheritance that he's the heir of. Right? So it's from. It can be from his father's house. If his father's living, he's able to take it from there. He's able to take it from his own, but he can also take it out of his father's house. And So this idea of from the inheritance, a lamb for the household. Now, if it's a small house, they can share the lamb with another house. So the number, the amount of people eating this, you could have a really large household like Abraham, who had three hundred and something men in the household. That lamb you'd have like pretty small pieces. Now, obviously, he was before the Passover, but if you were doing this same thing, you'd have pretty small pieces. And then, if you had a small house. And you go, well, I just got married. It's me and my wife eating an entire lamb. Right? So that would be rough. You're supposed to eat it in one night. So you would merge together with other households in that case. So, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. So we have these sort of symbolic elements that are given. He's without blemish. That points to Christ. We have Christ being a perfect sacrifice. He's a male of the first year. The first year, it's not just a newborn lamb. It's a lamb that's been raised for a year for the purpose of this feast. And so, the idea of offering a male reminds us of a few things. First, Christ came as a male to die as the only begotten Son of God. That gives the glory to God alone. He came as the second Adam. To represent us, with Adam having come before and failed, Christ is the second Adam. And he's also the bridegroom of the church. Okay, so he's the Son of God, he's the second Adam, he's the bridegroom of the church. And as the bridegroom, he sacrifices himself for his people. He does this to turn away the wrath of God, to remove our guilt. To provide reconciliation in our relationship with God. And he does this as a substitute, suffering, sacrificing himself in our place, in our stead, as a replacement. So point 12, the lamb is selected on the 10th day by a private family. And the lamb is to be killed or sacrificed on the 14th day in the public assembly. Okay, so it's like private preparation before coming to the Lord's Supper with the public observance of the Lord's Supper. That would be sort of this idea with the public sacrificing, the public killing together. So the blood of the lamb is put on two doorposts of the household that eat it. It's also on the lintel. so you have the posts on the top. The blood of the lamb is put on the two doorposts of the household to eat it. Who eat the lamb? This points to the idea of the covenantal nature of the house, and how it's brought into the visible church as a unit, to be protected from curse, and with the general expectation that those who are raised with the ordinances and the word of God, that they will ultimately be saved from the curse forever. So not everybody who's born in a Christian house is saved. But generally speaking, those who are raised with the word of God and with the worship of God are saved. That's generally the case. That is generally the way that the church expands, is the raising up of children and the fear and admonition of the Lord. There's also the bringing in of those who are raised in unbelieving houses who are brought to conversion and become disciples later in life. But this points to that idea. And we're going to see both types of disciples in this text. So verse 8. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Okay, so these things are, we have some of this explained for us, this idea of, so the eating of the flesh Jesus talks about how we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be saved. Um, The lamb here is a symbol in the same way that the bread in the Lord's Supper is a symbol. So eating the flesh of the lamb points to the idea of eating Christ. Okay, So there is this eating of the lamb and we eat the flesh of Christ symbolically now by eating bread in the Lord's Supper. This flesh is to be roasted in fire. This roasting in fire is supposed to point to the idea of the curse, the wrath of God that is taken on by Christ. So he is roasted, and his roasting, so to speak, is this idea of him taking the curse of God. So we are this, this Old Testament symbol was used of a, a flesh that was roasted in fire of the lamb. And then there's bread, there's unleavened bread. And Paul talks about the meaning of that unleavenedness, in the book of 1 Corinthians. He explains that the unleavenedness points to the idea of not having malice, not having hatred, not having hypocrisy when you take the Lord's Supper. Okay, So if you take the Lord's Supper with malice in the heart, with hatred, you're doing it hypocritically. And so we're to take the feast without the leaven of malice, without the leaven of hypocrisy. And the bitter herbs have to do with this sort of difficulty, this unpleasantness that exists in this life and so the taking in of the bitter herbs was one of the ceremonies in the old covenant that pointed to the pains, the difficulty the suffering, the sojourning, the agonizing spiritual warfare and we don't have to have bitter herbs in the bread in the Lord's Supper and we don't have to have unleavened bread now, we just have bread and so there's an interesting sort of collection of stuff there. And even though those things are all remembered in the Lord's Supper, we don't have all of the same external parts. And Jesus transforms this into the Lord's Supper. But there's a loss of some of the external ceremony. So it's simplified down. Verse 9. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire. This statement about what not to do, is an emphasis on the importance of the symbolic nature of the roasting. Okay? Now do it boiling and, and don't do it raw. It needs to be cooked and it needs to be cooked in this particular way. And then there's this eating of the whole. You're supposed to eat the head and the legs and the entrails. Verse 10. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Right? So whatever, whatever's left becomes a burnt sacrifice. It's something you can eat later. There's no putting this in the fridge and, and having a snack later. This is, you eat it now, or it goes away, and the command is to eat it all. There's a greater blessing right? you're fulfilling what's actually been commanded if you ate the whole of it. So there'd be a motivation to find the right number of households to bring in to make sure that you could eat it. Now, there's commands about how to eat it further. Verse 10, you shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Verse 11, and thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Okay, so it's encapsulated into this idea of it's the Lord's Passover. What does that remind us of? Well, it reminds us it's the Lord's. He's the one who defines it. It reminds us that it's about the passing over of the angel of death, the passing over of God's curse. And it reminds us that this thing should cause us to think back on the original event. The original event involves preparing to leave Egypt quickly. And so this Passover event is supposed to have a spiritual remembrance And even though there's not a literal leaving of Egypt, Egypt is used to point to the idea of the world. Pharaoh is used to point to Satan. And slavery is used to point to sin. And so, this idea of fleeing the slavery, fleeing Egypt, fleeing Pharaoh, we flee all of these. And we take the meal and we remember that. And we take that meal, the Lord's Supper, which replaces Passover. And we remember the need to with haste depart. And there are things that point to readiness. These symbols of the belt, the sandals, the staff, those things, we can find other references to the idea of of each of these. Think about the armor of God talking about the belt of truth. Think about the sandals on the feet, the the gospel, the piece of the gospel shodding your feet is what it's said to be in the armor passages in Ephesians 6. The staff in the hand is both a walking instrument, but also a defensive tool. And you have the sword of the Spirit given to us in Ephesians 6. But Jesus, when he talks to his disciples and sends them out two by two, he talks to them about the equipment that they're supposed to go out to Israel with. He does this with the 70 and with the 12. And what he says to them is he tells them not to take a money bag, not to take a knapsack, not to take any weapons with them. And they're not supposed to take the ordinary set of two stabs, which is you have a staff for defense and a staff for walking. But instead that they should only take the walking staff. Now in Luke, when he tells them, hey, this isn't like this anymore, take swords with you. Take your money bag. Take your, take your knapsack. There's this sort of, be ready to go out and do all the things. Be ready that you're going to have to use ordinary means. This isn't going to be like when you were going around Israel. So these things remind us, that these are, these are reminders, they interrelate this idea of being ready to sojourn and being ready to fight. That fighting, you might go, I don't know, sandals, walking staff, a belt. Like, is this really something that points to fighting? You're going to see throughout the rest of Exodus 12, it talks about this is the time when God took his armies out of Egypt. So beginning eating in haste, being ready for action, being ready to separate from and overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Where did they, Whoa, God? The gods of Egypt? Where does this come from? Gods of Egypt? What's being talked about here? First of all, Pharaoh claimed to be a god. And they had false gods. And when you look at the plagues, the plagues line up with the gods of Egypt. They start out, they have this worship of the Nile, and the Nile is supposed to be the source of life, and so God turns the Nile into a river of blood. Right? That's the first one. And this is this idea, oh, you worship the Nile, do you? Well, guess who controls the Nile? Every one of the other plagues points to some false Egyptian god. And so this tenth plague, the plague of killing the firstborn, This plague comes and it kills the son of Pharaoh. It kills the son of their fake God. And you need to remember there's an important background to why is God killing the firstborn here? Well, first of all, the firstborn represents a family. It's the future of the family. And secondly, we need to remember that Pharaoh had instituted a policy when the Hebrews were starting to increase in number The policy was this, kill every male child that's born. Pharaoh entered into an extermination of the male children of Israel. That's why Moses was hidden, remember? Moses gets put into a basket of reeds, and he gets floated over to Pharaoh's daughter in the hope that she will raise him and not kill him, despite the father's order, that perhaps, just perhaps, this girl from Pharaoh's house would not be able to kill this male child. And would instead save him. And so she did. And so Moses is raised in the house of Pharaoh, despite the order that he should be killed by Pharaoh. And he, being this son who's raised up, then seeks to resist Pharaoh, ultimately fails in his resistance because of betrayal of his own people, and then leaves, and then is called back by God to come back and bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. There's this last judgment, and this one is directly against Pharaoh and his future. I am the Lord. These plagues display the power of God and how He's greater than these false gods, these demons that are being worshipped. Verse 13, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the blood is a thing to remind to pass over so that you will not be destroyed. So that you will not be destroyed. And this is done in the houses. So again, the houses here... First, if you are in a Christian home, you are spared much from the curses of this life. If you are in a Christian home, you are under the ordinances and oracles of God. And so that is the ordinary way that God saves individuals. The holy house, holy children. Verse verse 12. So this day shall be to you a memorial... And you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Throughout your generations and an everlasting ordinance. That sounds like it keeps going. How do we deal with that? Because not, we're not doing it anymore. We're not supposed to do the Passover anymore. So how is that the case? This is why that principle of transformation is so important. The Lord's day captures it, and it gets transformed and put into it. Otherwise, how does it continue on forever? Does God just say things go on forever and then go, just kidding, not actually. It only goes on for an itty bit of time. To me, a thousand days is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so this was like, you know, one and a half days to me. This went on from like 1400 to Christ coming. No, it, it goes on forever. How does it go on forever? It goes on forever in the Lord's day, replacing the Passover and all the other feasts. And it goes on forever because we have the Lord's Supper to replace the Passover feast. It continues on. We have it. We are to remember these things. The meaning is encapsulated. This is for us. It's a memorial. It is a monument to remember it. Verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. Right. So this idea that before this feast, you're preparing and you're removing leaven from your houses. Whoever eats unleavened bread... From the first day until the seventh day, that person should be cut off from Israel. Okay, This removal of leaven, what does leaven represent again? again? What does it represent? Malice, hatred, insincerity, hypocrisy. So this idea of search yourself, search your house, men, lead your houses, look for hatred and hypocrisy and seek to remove it. Individuals, look for hatred and hypocrisy in your own heart. Seek to remove it. On the first day there should be a holy convocation. That's that's an assembly. This right here, this is a holy convocation. You hear holy convocation, what you need to think is the church assembly. Okay? You hear the idea of the holy assembly, the assembly, the church. Those all mean the same thing. A holy convocation. Con is with, and vocation is calling. So a holy gathering that's called And on the seventh day, there will be a holy convocation. So this this feast that goes across these days is started and ended with a holy assembly. No manner of work shall be done on them. So that idea of resting on the Sabbath, resting on holy feast days, that's put forward in the past, it continues forward, it's captured into the Lord's day. But that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Brought your armies. The church is an army of the Lord. The church is the host of God. It is the army of the Lord. It has been sent out for a purpose. These people were taken out from the world so that they could be trained up, and then they could go conquer. This is the pattern of discipleship. Individuals need to be taken out of the world. Individuals need to be raised up in covenant homes. They need to be prepared. They need to be trained. They need to be protected. They need to be discipled. And when they are prepared, they need to be sent to conquer. God pulls people out so that they can then concentrate, consolidate, train, be prepared. Verse 17. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. What does repetition mean again? Emphasis. So this idea of an everlasting ordinance, an ordinance throughout generations, this is not just a minor passing phrase. God doesn't have any idle words, but when he says it twice, it's really not idle. And so, we, how is it everlasting? How is it throughout the generations? It's consolidated into the Lord's day. It's consolidated into the Lord's supper. Verse eighteen: In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Excommunication, people. Leaven, you eat leaven, excommunication. That idea there. So you come to the Lord's Supper with malice. You come to the Lord's Supper with hypocrisy. You need to be removed from it. Whether he's a stranger or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leaven. So a stranger would be somebody who comes in as an adult disciple. A native of the land is somebody who was raised up in the church. Somebody who is a covenant child. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat nothing. You shall eat unleavened bread. Verse 21, Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families. He starts with the elders because he's having them help the other people. He pulls the elders in so they can then lead the other people in doing the same process. Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Okay, so this is that process. He's now explaining it. We've had this thing explained to us a few times now. How many times have you heard Moses explain for us in the book of Exodus, take the blood, put it on the doorposts, put it on the lintel. This is like time three time three. And so the symbolism here seems to be something that's emphasized and important. So the blood of the lamb. What is blood in the Bible? Blood in the Bible points to life. That's what we're told in Genesis, that the reason we, don't, we shouldn't eat blood out of animals is because it's symbolic of the life. Okay? So when Jesus spills his blood, what is he spilling out? He's spilling out his life. The blood represents the life. And so the life of the lamb is given to preserve the life of those in the house. The life of the lamb is given to preserve the life of those in the house. The blood of the lamb represents the life of the lamb, and the giving of the life is to prevent the death, to save from death the people in that house. And so it's put over the door. Put on the doorpost, put on the lintel. So remember in Deuteronomy 6 that we read this morning, the idea of putting the word of God on the door? Same symbolism here for the blood. The institution of the household is represented by the door. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Striking. Destroyer. Passing over. What's the passing? The passing over is the passing over of one who has the great power to destroy you. And he is not destroying you, he's preserving you, and he's destroying your enemies instead. The God of the Bible is a terrifying God, and he destroys his enemies and the enemies of his people. Outside of the church, outside of those people who receive the signs of the covenant, there is great curse. I mean, look around. You know a lot of unbelievers. You know a lot of unbelievers. They are not living lives filled with joy and meaning. They are suffering under curse enormously. Their lives are meaningless and boring. They fill them with excess and riot to seek to make it so they have something to do to put the boredom at bay. And they are destroying themselves with that excess. And when they wake up, they are overcome with guilt and are looking for the next excess and riot to remove the guilt and the boredom, to discover something, to cover that up and hide it from themselves. That curse, that curse is something that you are spared from being under the ordinances and oracles of God. And so in this life, the destroyer does not destroy like he would have. Verse 24, and you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. Repetition. Emphasis. 25, it shall come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service The tendency that we see in the Bible is that people are in a bad spot, they cry out to the Lord, the Lord saves them, they prosper, there's blessing, and they forget God. When you are prospered, when you are blessed, when he has caused you to ride the high places of the earth and filled your barns past filling, you are to remember him and you're to have this service as a memorial, as a check in time. The Lord's Day is that memorial now, and the Lord's Supper is that memorial act. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Okay, Look at this. The Passover did not include children. The Passover did not include children. Circumcision, given to children. The entry ritual, given to children. Passover was the renewal ritual. You're renewing the covenant, renewing the covenant, renewing the covenant year by year. Circumcision, one time. Baptism, one time. Lord's Supper, renewal. Over and over and over and over and over. The children did not participate in the Passover. They do not participate in the Lord's Supper until they make a credible profession. It shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? What do you mean? Not what do we mean. The kid's not sitting there chomping down lamb going... Hey, Dad, what is this about? He's saying, Dad, you're eating this. This is your service. You're doing this thing. What are you doing? What is this your service? So here we have at the very institution of Passover, the children, before they're catechized, are not to participate in the table. But when they know the answers to the questions, then they come to the table. What do you mean by this service? Verse 27. That you shall say, and you explain the meaning. It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over our houses, the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. How does this point to Christ? Right When we have the Lord's Supper, right? this is the Lord's Supper, and he saved us. And he struck enemies. He crushed the head of the serpent, Satan. And he delivered us and our children and all who are afar off. Whoever would believe. Throughout all the nations. It goes beyond Israel. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Right? That reminder of the gospel, that reminder of what God has done leads to a bowing of the head and worshipping. And then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Okay, verse 29. And it came to pass at night that the Lord struck all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in a dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house. Where there was not one dead, the plagues discriminate targets. There was darkness in Egypt, and there was light where the Israelites were. There's the death of those in the Egyptian houses, and life for those in the Israelite houses. And so we have this God not only, there, not only is there generally curse, but there's this bringing of curse in judgment on those who reject the God of the covenant. Verse 31, Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So Pharaoh, out of exasperation, finally says, fine, I give up, I've been defeated. Here is the God of Egypt being conquered. And he sends out the people of Israel and tells them, go be free. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. Get out of here or we're all going to die. Leave. Leave. These people were heavily motivated to keep the Hebrews in slavery. Who was profiting from this? The entire nation of Egypt. And they were all going, get out of here. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the words of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. All throughout the Bible, there's this theme that the wicked pile up resources and the godly get blessed by it. Jeff Bezos builds Amazon, you get Prime. There's this building of things and you get the enjoyment. The reprobate build roads, you drive on them. There is this piling up of silver and it's for your blessing. And God plunders the Egyptians. He plunders Satan's house. He plunders the world. He makes it so that there are vineyards you didn't build and you get to enjoy them. There are cities you didn't build and you get to dwell in them. And this is another example of that. God plunders the world and gives it to the church. Verse 36 and verse 35. Now the children of Israel had done according to the words of Moses, and they asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord (coughs) had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Alright, I am missing pages. Somebody give me your hand up. Thank you. Those are precisely the pages I was missing. Thank you. Alright, page 8. Then the children of Israel sojourned from... Ramses to sucketh about six hundred thousand men on foot, besides children, a mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock, and they baked eleven cakes of the dough of which they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were driven out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared provisions for themselves. So the leaven points to the haste, it points to the quickness, it points to the need to avoid malice, the need to avoid hypocrisy, and an urgency about it, a haste about it. We should be living in a way where there is a sense of urgency. We need to redeem the time. Life is short, and there is much to do. Verse 40. Now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. They were there for 430 years when they were taken out of Egypt. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on that very same day, it came to pass that all the armies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So again, the people of God are called the armies of the Lord. It is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations. We have a solemn observance given to us by Christ. That replaces us. It's the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Day is a solemn observance of us being delivered and being given life. And the resurrection of Christ is given to us. And so there is that day for the resurrection, to remember it. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. In this part, here's the other way you can come into the Passover. You can Come into the Lord's table. There's the children. They're catechized. Here's the second way. No foreigner shall eat it. But every man's servant who is bought for money, part of the house, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and a hired servant shall not eat it. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. That breaking of bones, this is the first mention of this idea of the sacrificial lamb here not having any bones broken. Psalm 22 takes this and transfers it to Christ. And then it is said of Christ that none of his bones were broken when he was crucified. Now the ordinary practice of the Romans was to break the legs of those who were being crucified to speed it along. They enjoyed the torture, but at a certain point kind of got old. They so, thought let's just accelerate this thing, let's break their legs and kill them on the cross. They did that to the other two guys that were being crucified, didn't do it to Jesus because he was already dead. So he avoids breaking of bones in the process of the crucifixion so that he can be a, pa- a sacrificial lamb according to the order of Passover. Verse 47 All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells, so when somebody from outside Israel comes into Israel and dwells there with you, and then they want to keep the Passover of the Lord, they want to become like the people of God, let all his males be circumcised, let his whole house get baptized. And that will show that he's serious about submitting to Christ and to having his household be governed by the rule of Christ. And then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land. So this is how you became an Israelite. You covenanted to join the nation. This is how you join the church. You covenant to join the church. And you come to the table. For no uncircumcised person shall eat it. No unbaptized person shall eat the Lord's Supper. One law shall be for the native born. He needs to be circumcised and catechized. And for the stranger, he needs to be circumcised and catechized who dwells among you. Thus all the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass on the very same day that the Lord brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their armies. That right there, When we think about the Lamb of God, that Passover text, the text out of Genesis 22, these give us a sense of what does this mean when John says, Behold the Lamb of God. This is what he's talking about. He's saying that Jesus is our Passover. That we avoid the angel of death. We avoid the curse of God. We have the blood of Christ over us because of what Christ does, offering himself as a sacrifice. Now, the two disciples, bottom of page nine, heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and, seeing them following, said to them, "What do you seek?" And so these these two guys, they leave John. John sends them away. They follow Jesus, and Jesus says, "What do you want?" And they said to him, "Rabbi," which is to be, which is to say, when translated, teacher. Where are you staying? Two things there. They're going. We would like to join your house as disciples. Calling you rabbi, which literally means master in Hebrew, by the way. And we talk about the idea of a master being a teacher. We t- it's translated as, as teacher because that's how it became prominently used. But the idea of a master of the house. Think about this. A master craftsman is the guy that teaches the other craftsmen. You have apprentices. You have journeymen. You have the master. Okay? How about a master's degree? A master's degree is you had the bachelor's. Origin of that. Funny. But we'll, we'll keep going. Then the master's degree... And the master's degree, you're ready to teach. Okay, a doctor's a teacher, but a master is a teacher. And so this idea of calling him master, he's teacher. Where are you staying? We want to join your house. So John and Andrew join his house, and they acknowledge him as authoritative and want to serve him. And so verse 39, he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying on page 10 and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. So they, they joined him at 10 a.m., and then from there, they joined him for the rest of the day. And so they're checking out what's going on. They're observing things before they make a great commitment. And one of the two, verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew Simon, Peter's brother. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Peter, the Apostle Peter, is the brother of this guy. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Remember the Messiah means the anointed one, which is translated the Christ. Christ means the anointed one. Anointed for what? The three offices, prophet, priest, king. And he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew believes John the baptizer's teaching about Jesus. He examines Jesus. He confirms that Jesus is the Christ. And he then goes to his brother and says, hey, we found the the guy. From the Messiah. You should get on board. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You should be called Cephas, which is translated as stone. And so he meets him, and Cephas is Aramaic for stone, and Peter or Petros is Greek for stone. And so we have these two names, Cephas and Peter. Both of them mean stone. Jesus meets him, accepts him as a disciple, and by giving him this name, predicts that he is going to be one who is used to reveal, to help to lay the foundation for the church. And so, we're in there. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those who speak?